1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Roy F. Fox about his book, Facing the Sky, Composing Through Trauma in Word and Image. Roy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Trevor. It's my pleasure. Roy, it's great to have you here, and I'm wondering if we could begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Okay. Um... I have been a um, uh, a high school teacher, um, uh, a, a university faculty member for the last twenty five years. Um, before that, I did a number of jobs: a ditch digger, an all night cook, um, plastic factory. God help me! <laughs> uh, a number, a number of things like that. Um, I officially retired last August, but uh, I'm still still have my hand in a number of projects. Um, I was an art major uh, as an undergraduate and shifted into English. And so I've been teaching um, writing and literature and language. I'm currently teaching an online course in the teaching of language. Um, so uh, I've been very fortunate to have my hands in a lot of different but related areas.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about this book, Facing the Sky, and um, how you came to write this one?
0: Yes. Um, a lot of personal and, and professional reasons. And, um, and and I'm going to kind of go through these a little bit randomly. Sure. But um, first, you know, people have to understand that, you know, it's, it's not a new thing. Um, a lot of perceptive Smart people in the past have used writing in order to solve problems and work their way through trauma. And when I say trauma, I'm talking uh, a whole continuum of traumas from things that we might consider relatively minor to, you know, sudden tragedy that just throws people into the um, uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, uh, in Fawn Brody's book, has a uh, uh, letters that he wrote to Maria Cosway, um, a woman that he fell in love with when he was in France, and it's called a dialogue between my head and my heart. And that's exactly what it is, and that's a core of writing about trauma: is that you know you have to draw upon um rationality and logic as well as emotions and intuition and all of those things. Um, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, uh another example um, a few years ago, um uh, a an historian Richard Miller, Richard L. Miller discovered what's been called Lincoln's suicide poem. And, you know, most historians agree that it was Lincoln's um, that he wrote when he was living in Illinois. Uh, a slightly more recent example is Harry Truman, President Truman, who would lock himself into the into a room at the Mulebach Hotel in Kansas City um, when he was a judge, when he was a senator, and later in the White House. But he would go in and and write his way out of what was bothering him. So there's, there's definitely precedence. Um, other reasons I've spent my life in the teaching of writing and the teaching of teachers about writing. Uh, and I've done other research on writing. I am very much a believer in imagery, whether it's internal in our heads, uh, or external, uh, in a painting or a film that we're watching. Um, I've worked in media literacy for a long time, uh, helping to get it into the national standards. Um, the, the, and there's some, some reasons, um, about the status quo that still exists that also motivated me to do this book. And one of the main ones is that by and large, especially in the middle and upper grades in public school and in an awful lot of universities, um, what is called personal writing, is pretty much banned. Um, it, uh, You know, we have a caste system in society, but we've got one in terms of discourse in schools, and uh, the thought is that argumentation and academic writing is more pure than writing about uh, personal experience, but there's there's no biological proof there's no academic or pedagogical reasons that that should be excluded other than the business model that has shaped education at least since the 1980s There are lots of um, uh, stereotypes that surround personal writing this fear that it's going to pollute um, Uh, the more pure forms of discourse, such as argumentation. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a bit of unawareness in the public that many of our best writers do indeed um, integrate personal experience into more objective forms of writing, whether it's George Orwell or Mark Twain or Joan Diddy and a White or Martin Luther King. You know, I mean, it's, you don't have to look too far um, in the way that um, uh, rural and urban English has been uh, stigmatized as being ungrammatical and sloppy and ignorant that has helped sweep the value of personal writing away because I mean, by the same token, those are deemed by and large. Uh, Impure and pollutants of a more pure English or pure academic thinking, and I just don't believe in that kind of purity at all. There's there's no evidence for it. Some one irony here is that we hear teachers and administrators and everybody else always say, "Well, we teach individuals." Um, we don't treat everybody the same. We focus on the individual. And my answer to that is no, we don't. The only way we can teach individuals is to find out about them and find out, uh, and help them bring to the surface what's going on in their heads when they come into school. And, um, we, we simply don't do that. That is largely um, a taboo. Um, a, a, a student in my course on writing about trauma um, really took it to heart, and she taught that way in junior high for several, several years. And she could not stop her students from writing. And um, she just did great with it. And I will come back to her or help me remember to come back to her. Um, the most important reason um, for doing the book was uh, the people that I worked with. Uh, my students and students of students and colleagues and friends uh, who are writers, people I met at conferences, uh, principals, um, and I decided to focus on how language experts, people with masters and doctoral students, but I also do middle school and a few, some junior high students uh, and high school students. But how how do how do they go about it? We needed to learn about um, not just how novices did it, uh, but how experts did it, and so that was a main reason. Um, there is a chapter on Lucy, um, and that is her real name. She's the only person who wanted, you know, her real name Mm -hmm. used. who's a faculty member. Um, Kate is a faculty member, Claire in the book who appears in each chapter. That's the student that I had in class who went on to become a teacher. Um, Cass is a middle school student. Uh, using imagery and writing. Uh, Khan, as a Vietnamese college student, who used imagery and writing. Uh, Juan, as a middle school boy, used imagery and writing. Um, but overall, I, I, what I wanted to do was try to demystify the inner workings of language and imagery to show how it addressed issues of trauma and, and, you know, and, and they're varying levels of trauma. Uh, the two major case studies, uh, are, are serious pieces of trauma. Uh, Lucy, um, had a, a, a stage four metastatic cancer diagnosis and she had been my student several years ago. And, um, I very cautiously asked her you know, can I? Would you work with me? I'm, I'm I'm working on this book now, and and she just readily agreed, and and she was wonderful. There are a number of other uh, of other people um, who just have very different stories, but I think I better
1: stop there and let you get on. One thing I appreciate about the book is that um, you share a little bit about um, your own traumas that you've experienced. In fact, you, you begin the book by um, sharing an experience of yours as a young boy. And that was um, how you dealt with uh, the loss of your grandfather. And you're not yeah. only telling your readers that, um, you know, at that time you weren't composing words and images to ease your pain, but you're reminding us that uh, many of the means of communication that you share with students in your graduate course, uh, those were just not available to you in 1959. So I, I guess I'm wondering um, when did you discover that um, people could be using composition to help themselves through the grieving process?
0: Well, it was, uh, uh, I love the question. It was a slow process. Um, you know, where I start the book at age nine or 10, um, you know, uh, you know, I was like, uh, um, uh, like a kid, I want to say, but who, who just didn't know and was only responding to what was there, and but I was also responding to what was not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was one of the things I couldn't understand was why isn't this being acknowledged? Why, why are we pretending so much? And of course, and I'm talking about my family, my immediate family and, and so forth, Right after the death of my grandfather at at his house uh and and you know there was the stiff upper lip uh of the midwest in in the nineteen fifties and and that's still true and there's a lot of value and a lot of virtue in that i I don't dismiss that, but um as a kid uh it was unfathomable um, I came to um, understand. Um, for, you know, uh, I don't know. In the middle of my career, early in my career, in teaching writing, that students would give me writing about trauma, whether I asked for it or not. Hmm. In other words, they they would often. Reinterpret, um, and reshape a writing assignment, or ignore the writing assignment because they had to do—they uh, had to deal with what was sitting on their head or sitting o- on their heart before they could do anything else. And that's um, that's a compelling reason to to deal with this, um, uh, or to offer to deal with it and, and face it head on, um, because it affects, uh, it it becomes a filter through everything that they're trying to learn and, and everything that we might be trying to teach. So, uh, I would get it whether I wanted it or not. Um, and then, um, I gradually kept, um, making academic assignments that legitimized parts of a personal trauma or parts of personal experience. And a number of learning psychologists from from Louise Rosenblatt to Vygotsky to, to Jerome Bruner um, uh, and on and on will tell us that um, it has to make new material, new information has to make sense within uh, the personal context. So I gradually be- became aware, or relatively quickly, became aware that that's part of it, and it should be legitimized as much as it's not. So that was the language end. Um, it was. It was much more recently that I. And after I had been teaching graduate courses in for teachers on how to deal with trauma through writing uh, in the classroom or in a professional context, that I it dawned on me through my work in media literacy and through my uh, previous experience as an art teacher that, oh, you know, these two go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um they're, they're each it's much more combustible if there's visual and verbal material to work with. It's much more combustible. And so then I offered the course uh, with both. And I was um, even I was surprised at what people did and how the visual or unpacking and interrogating a visual, as well as unpacking and interrogating language, I was surprised at how effective that was. And so there's one chapter uh, that deals with seven writers composing through word and image. And uh, I show the imagery that they sometimes created themselves. They sometimes generated uh, electronically on a computer uh, or whatever, and some of the process that they went through and how it, um, helped them. Um, one of the last times I taught this course, um, Khan is a, a brilliant Vietnamese, um, uh, graduate student, um, of mine. And during that course, his good friend, uh, was dying of cancer. Uh, it just happened that way. And so his friend became the focus of the writing that he did over that semester. And um, uh, he did some very
1: interesting, um, beautiful work. You um, you mentioned earlier, even before you were teaching this course, um, you were identifying trauma in your students' writing that was seemingly about something unrelated. I was wondering, um, what, what were those characteristics of the writing that you found? Um, what sort of ties all this writing together and, uh, maybe makes it unique from writing that people do when they're experiencing joy or not in the midst of a traumatic experience or, or one that they're dealing with.
0: Um, yes, yes. um, one of the things um, I noticed was that when they hit upon these kind of personal, meaningful topics, they would write a lot more. They would become much more fluent. Um, a lot of times, um, their uh, uh, it would be it, their style would become much clearer and much. Uh, more fluent um, and articulate. It would also become more detailed. Um, the voice or persona in the writing uh, would become um, um, more natural, um, mm-hmm. smoother, versus some tortured syntax that they might get involved in writing about something that they were less familiar with. Now, there is great value in writing, and I'm a deep believer in writing about things that you are not familiar with. Um, one of the misperceptions, and forgive me if I wander here a bit, but one misperception is that um, such writing uh, um, is not objective. Well, uh, I would request objective writing about personal experience and trauma. And I would request um, much more subjective about the same topic. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a, another key component in, in writing about trauma, uh, but that is much more common in academia and public schools is research writing. Well, it, research writing and using secondary sources has a, a, Plays a, a key role in writing about trauma to help people enlarge the context because they're living their lives thinking, oh, this, this is only affects me. You know, I'm, I'm suffering here by myself. And so that's when I, um, steer them toward the larger world, the larger context and secondary sources. I'll give an example or two. One of my students was writing about um, an instance when his younger brother was arrested for uh, using drugs. They lived in a small Midwestern town and his mother comes in to the room where my, my student was and asks him if he knew about it. Uh, His brother using drugs. And he said, no, uh, but he lied and that was nagging at him. And the fact that this family member in this small conservative farming community was arrested, uh, was a big deal. Um, and traumatizing for them, uh, and especially traumatizing for the writer because of the lie he had told. Well, one of the things, we got to the point where uh, what he needed to do <laughs> was look at different and larger contexts, and uh, it got to the point where I had to say, you know, Rob, or whatever his name was, this would not be such a big deal <laughs> in, in anybody's mind in Eugene, Oregon,
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or Seattle, Washington, or, you know, uh, and, uh, so the idea was to get him to research, uh, practices and attitudes in a larger context in other places. Um, you know, one student was, her relatively mild trauma was not understanding her birth, where she came from. She was adopted by a great family. She loved her adopted parents, but she just didn't know why she had been abandoned. And so what she did was research why people put children up for adoption in rural Kansas in the 1970s. You know, that that kind of thing. Uh, the reasons for it, the stats behind it, what happened to the parents, why they would do so, that those kinds of things. So, so secondary sources uh, can and should play um, a key role. Um, some other things that set the writing off. Um, uh, the uh, Let me go back to um, uh, the audi- audi- audience awareness and I mentioned fluency or writing more and writing more naturally. But um, what Sometimes, What often happens um, is that in writing about trauma, writers will, they need to be aware of audience, yes, but to a large extent, they need to turn that awareness off or dial it down. Uh Because if they're too obsessed and too aware of somebody sitting on their shoulder, they get hamstrung, they get blocked they start trying to please a reader, and that's not what early stages of this is about. Um, one Another re- thing that clued me into uh, differences um, uh, in writing about trauma versus other kinds of writing was um, uh, what James Moffat called simultaneous differentiation and integration. And when somebody is, is you know, wrestling with a trauma, you see them dealing with oppositions and tugging one way and tugging another. And, it, and that's a very good thing. Um, but because what they're trying to do in simple terms is to figure out, well, how am I like other people and how am I different from other people? and And that's the key question that that they're wanting to to sort out so so that shows up um, when they're when they're probing and interrogating and tolerating uh ambiguity and opposition's, that's a good thing also um, but what typically happens if people believe they don't have the right to do that is that they just stop. They say, oh, these are opposites. Okay, I'm at the end of the road. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not it. You're at the beginning of the road, and you've got to keep going. Um, imagery is a big thing. Um, uh, uh, external, pictorial, yes, but internal imagery in reading and writing uh, is key. And I've spent a lifetime trying to get teachers to to accept that and to understand it and to explore it. But um, in in an academic setting, um, I have always been surprised at how everybody else thinks that imagery is taboo. You know. Uh, like when I taught developmental writing students or um, high school teachers or whatever they they think that um, their writing has to be academic, polysyllabic, um, long sentences, um, you know academic jargony, all of those things that are terrible you know for thinking and for style, but that's what they think academic. And school writing should be, Mm -hmm. and so they just they just put themselves in knots um, if they believe in that. When I was when I would teach very novice writers who could not get into the standard freshman writing course, I would have them deconstruct and interrogate and try to legitimize images in their head. I would have them write about dreams. I would have them write about um, half-formed thoughts that were partially imagistic, and I got great writing. And the thing is, um, most students in in any kind of school environment simply think it's taboo. They simply don't trust it. They simply think that um, teachers do not want anything that might be concrete or pictorial or detailed. So, you know, lots of other, lots of other reasons. Um, but uh, I will come back to some of them maybe later.
1: You just hit on something else that I'm really interested in is uh, while, you know, you can cite historical examples from Jefferson to to Harry Truman, um, it's not something this type of writing isn't commonplace in high schools. Um, there, It doesn't seem like there are a lot of courses like this in college or in graduate school either. And so how did you go about uh, legitimizing this, uh, this style of, or this purpose for writing amongst your faculty and your students? How did you change their minds and see, to get them to see it differently?
0: Uh, wonderful question. Um... With some trepidation,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, when I when I when I legitimized the whole thing and gave it uh, a, as a title to a course, um, you know, I thought, well, you know, I must have colleagues who think I'm in deep space. You know, they <laughs> must think they must think I'm Shirley MacLaine out on a limb, um, and on and on and on. Um, my students were. My students jumped right in, bless their hearts um, they uh they hardly and and it's not for everyone all the time, and some of them question it and and some of them were reluctant yes but but they were won over um, so uh because this was um, uh, started as a course for teachers um i I had to Legitimize and and have background readings and discussions and writings about research on imagery uh, and psycholinguistic research on imagery. Um, uh, Alan Pavio uh, and Stephen Kozlowski and a number of other psycholinguists um, focus on this, and they will they will reduce. And some of it is re- reductionist, but they will reduce. Um, imagery to kind of, uh, labeled elements like imagens and logogens, word and image, and, uh, arrive at the conclusion that, well, they reinforce each other. That, uh, an image can elicit words, but it can also elicit other images. And an image can evoke another image, but also evoke words. So when you put the two together, uh, they really are, I think, much more combustible. My students, and in particular, and surprisingly to me, my international students grabbed onto it more quickly and um, tighter and more thoroughly than my native-born speakers. And so so that was a surprise to me. And, um, and, and the only explanation I have for that is that because they know more than one language, they have had experience uh, and more trust in matching <coughs> verbal language and thought with images and, and pictures and all that kind of thing. They were much more receptive, uh, a lot faster, I think, than than my native-born speakers.
1: I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to the physical and emotional benefits of uh, writing or composing uh, art pieces through trauma.
0: Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, number one, um, it's not for everybody, and it's not for everybody uh, all the time. Um, um, I, I had, uh, I, I, in essence, got away with this course because I could, um, you know, I was a full rank, uh, or at the time, uh, professor level and I had tenure and I had tenure in another English department. Um, and I could do it. Um, you know, I sound like Bill Clinton, you know, I, I did it because I could, And there, there, there was not a questioning about that. I think I did more questioning um, of myself because I would have some students who, uh, a few, just a few out of the first time I saw it out of 20 some, I had maybe two, two to three, maybe who were somewhat resistant and they would dodge around the issues or they would write in circles to avoid nailing the issue. And there's a point in the process where you, I, want people to nail it on the head and say it in very explicit terms. Um, and the most pushy thing I do at that point with a reluctant writer uh, is to give them a sentence pattern if they've been writing it in circles and avoiding issues, I would give them a pattern that says, I am writing about blank, you know, fill in the issue for these three reasons, you know, colon, you know, reason number one, reason number two, reason number three. Um, but that's, that's rare. Um, some people, um, a very, very few, uh, at least in my experience, uh, and Claire in the book is one of them. And so let me tell you just a little bit about Claire it caused me to question myself and the whole concept. She would do, uh, she was an articulate, smart, uh, young woman, um, um uh, graduate teacher, graduate student, and she would, would do certain assignments, but the final assignment would ask them to put all these different experiences that they wrote about together and to connect them in certain ways. And she, she, uh, persisted in saying, I just don't have anything to write about. And, uh, as I say, in that course, there was a lot of apparatus or a lot of supplementary material about the legitimacy uh, 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 of vocalizing or, um, uh, displaying, it's not the right word, but of articulating trauma and psychological reasons for it and how it works and, and that kind of thing. But she just kept saying, I can't, I can't do it. I don't have anything, even though I, Uh, would constantly say, you know, trauma is very different for each person, and I can't judge the trauma. For some people, you're going to be down here on the continuum where it's no big deal, it's no big whoop, or it might be in the middle, or it might be a very serious trauma. In in the book, two of the case studies are very serious. One was, as I said, the, the stage four cancer diagnosis and metastatic cancer. Uh, such a diagnosis is a death sentence. And because of that, no money is put into research or very little money put into research for it. Um, the other, the other case study, uh, her husband was, um, killed, uh, in a freak accident, you know, when a deer jumped in front of his motorcycle kind of thing. Uh, and and these are people who were just cast into Deep space and chaos, and it was like they woke up on a different in a different world and had to start forming connections and relationships and uh, identities all over again, even in their forties and fifties. Um, to go back to Claire, mm-hmm. um, she kept saying the student who could not find anything traumatic to write about despite all of that. The course ended. Um, I had to give her an incomplete. And and so I started thinking, uh, you know, she's, she can't be alone. There, there have to be other people who just, for one reason or another, can't or won't um, approach any trauma, regardless of how loosely that term is used. Um, so I gave her an incomplete and really finally forgot about it, for, you know, stopped questioning myself. You know, I got busy with other things. You know how that goes. You got to keep going. Um, and then a uh, month later, um, she writes me. And she said, you know, uh, dear Dr. Fox, my name is the last thing you probably want to read. But I want to tell you that I finally wrote this. And it's attached to this email. And, um, you know, it was very difficult, et cetera, et cetera. Well, after the course, um, she went to a counselor and then wrote this beautiful, long, detailed um, account um, of her being raped by her stepbrother when she was growing up. And then she eventually found out that her stepbrother had raped her sister, and her other sister, okay? And that was, she just couldn't deal with it at that time. Mm -hmm. So, number one, it's not for everyone. Uh, Number two, you know, if it's a course, uh, you know, it happens at a snapshot in time, and you don't know where people are, and maybe they can't do it. Um, But back to Claire, Claire became such a convert She started using, uh, she started, you know, allowing her junior high students to write about trauma all the time. And she did that for several years. And students came in and they just wrote their hearts out and their eyes out all the time. I mean, they were just doing incredible amounts, um, uh, of production, um, and I, and I'm, I'm sure quality stuff. Um, But then one day, you know, as you might expect, it became a bit of a bureaucratic issue when um, a counselor or administrator somehow found out that one student in her journal or whatever it was had thought about suicide. But um, my student, Claire, the teacher, had not read that. In other words, she told her students, if you've got something you're writing in your journal, you don't want me to read, just fold the page over, you know, and I'm busy enough, I won't, I won't read it. So she didn't read that. Anyway, principal finds out and it kind of blew things up. Uh, and she went back to teaching a more traditional approach and didn't like it. And so she, and this is a, a bittersweet thing. She stopped being an English teacher and went back to school to become a counselor where she could use writing. So, um, she's an, an interesting case that appears all the way through the book. So yeah, it's not for everyone. Um, uh, most people who, uh, I've worked with, um, um sometimes, a lot of times they volunteer, um, they come to me, um, if it's imposed, um, you have to be careful. And one thing that I always did, at least in my college classes, was that I would have a counseling psychologist on call. And uh, I would tell them ahead of time, I said, I don't expect to need you, but it's always possible. Uh, and... Sometimes they would come to the class once and introduce themselves and and say, "I'm here," and you know so so that's a safety net um because teachers are not psychologists, but in a way they are much more than people realize because when students have problems, they have to be dealt with right then, right there. You can't say, "Oh, let me go consult my psychologist or my counselor." I mean, sometimes you can, but an awful lot of, it's like baseball, A awful lot of decisions are made uh, in the heat of battle to mix a metaphor.
1: Mm. Roy, we, we've taken up a lot of your time. And so I'm just going to ask you one more question. And that is, um, sure. how can we follow your work now?
0: The book is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of ideas. Um, I will eventually have a um, a website or a better website I should say. Uh what I have now is just a university thing. Um, but uh in the fall of um, uh this year um, I, I was fortunate enough to uh to be I'll I'll be a Fulbright scholar in Ireland at a university in Ireland and it's part teaching and part research. And I'll be working with faculty members um, who want to improve the quantity and quality of their professional products, whether it's writing or whether it's art or whether uh, it's sculpture or a musical composition or whatever it is. One of the ways I'll be doing that is uh, through the door of uh, imagery and visual and verbal thinking. Um, uh, and that's what they wanted. Um, uh, a a portion of my work in, uh, in Cork, Ireland, uh, will also be research-based and, um, uh, trauma is not a key element, but it will certainly play in because they will be developing, um projects in their own disciplines, whether it's art or music or, or social sciences or whatever it is. And I will want them to, or hope that they, uh, choose projects that are, uh, personally meaningful for them. And so when that happens, you get into the creator gets into themes of, um, resistance to the status quo. They get into themes of personal identity they get into themes of agency uh, all those kinds of good things so my research will be kind of mapping their process in coming up with meaningful projects and um in terms of identity and personal experience it's really hard to bypass traumatic experience uh, in that um, so, uh, I look forward to writing about, uh, that work next year in some shape or form. Um, uh, I edit a little journal called, um, engaging cultures and voices learning through media. And, um, it's free, it's open access. We We do a lot of stuff for, you know, speakers of other languages and, and, Teachers who work with English language learners, but it's certainly not limited to that, but it has a strong uh, media and imagery um, focus to learning language. So those, um, those
1: are probably the, the best ways right now. Roy, those sound like fantastic projects, and congratulations on your Fulbright. I enjoyed having you on the show today.
0: it it was my pleasure trevor and it's um it's always um uh, a gift you know to to have a conversation with somebody who uh, has read the book and knows what they're talking about and is (laughs) interested so so I, i appreciate it on my end just as much
1: excellent so much uh thank you take care take care you too